0: The text of this sermon is found in the 37th Psalm. So I'd invite you to turn to that magnificent Psalm, perhaps one of the most beautiful of all pieces of of literature and certainly the Psalms. 37th Psalm is our text today, beginning at verse one. I want to read through verse 11. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will do it. The New, American, the New International uh, Version has it, and He will do this. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing. For the evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and it will not be there. But the humble shall inherit the land, and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity." This is a fretful, anxious, uptight world which you and I live. Two hundred and thirty million prescriptions for tranquilizers were sold last year in America. A million Americans will have a heart attack this year. One out of 10 are alcoholics. And eight million Americans have ulcers. This is an uptight, anxious, fretful world. And everybody has a prescription for man's anxiety. I mean, everybody has an answer for it. You go into a modern bookstore and the shelves are just groaning under books that give you a cure for worry. If you wanna get a bestseller, either write on 1 how to lose weight or 2 how to lose how to win over worry if you put them in the same book you've really got a bestseller everybody's got a prescription for anxiety even satchel page you remember him don't you first black um, player in the american league broke into the to the american league the big leagues when he was 50 years old after pitching in the black leagues around the country. He was a great player, but he was an even better philosopher. He gave us six ways, six um, helps for for emotional health. Listen to him. Said, avoid fried meats which angry up the blood. Well, French fries you had planned for lunch today, it's gonna make your blood angry if you eat that. If your stomach disputes you, lie down and pacify it with cool thoughts. Keep your juices flowing, this is third, by jangling around gently as you move. Hanging loose prevents back and neck aches. Go very light on vices such as carrying on in society. The social rumble ain't restful. Avoid running at all times. <laughs> Number six, don't look back. Something may be gaining on you. <laughs> he, he was saying that one can subject himself to unnecessary worry when he pre, he's pro, preoccupied with the past. Now, I don't know whether that stuff will preach or not, but I do know that this will preach. And the Word of God has a tremendous amount to say about worry, about fretfulness, about anxiety. As a matter of fact, in this passage, he says imperatively, do not fret three times. You know, of course, that the Psalms were written for God's people. They were used in worship. That is to say that even God's people will have anxiety and fretfulness. That even God's people are not exempt um, from the anxiety and the fears and the frustrations that are a part of this world. Do not fret, he said. The the word means don't get yourself in a heat. Don't get hot under the collar. Don't lose your cool. Don't get hot and bothered. In an uptight world, he's saying, stay cool, stay loose. Don't get anxious. Don't be fretful. And then he gives four suggestions for how to win over anxiety, how to overcome a life of fretfulness. But before we get to the solution for anxiety, the solution for fretfulness and frustration, we need to take a quick look at the sources of it. And he gives three sources from which all anxiety comes. The first, he says, is that anxiety comes from the inequities of life. There are times, of course, when life just flat isn't fair, when things don't turn out the way you thought they would, or even the way you thought God promised that they would. And so he says right up front, don't be envious of wrongdoers. The key word is envious. Don't fret about wicked doers. Now, he's not saying, the psalmist is not envious of the sin of the, of the evildoer. He's not envious of their sin. He's envious of the apparent prosperity of the sinner. And he's saying this, in essence, this is what he's saying. He said, here are these guys who are living this reckless life, and they're forgetting about God, and they're just leaving God out of their life, and they're just getting along fine in the world. Things are going fine with them, and here I am serving God all my life, doing the best I can, and this one problem after another just isn't fair. That's true. Sometimes life just flat isn't fair. When life is completely out of balance, the inequities of life, and it strangles prayer, doesn't it? I mean, why would you pray and ask God for help when nothing's going to come out right in the first place? I mean, it just stifles your prayer life. Now, some of you may not know it this morning, but some of you have anxiety, frustration, fretfulness, because down deep inside you feel that life hasn't given you a fair shake. I mean, it's just not fair the way things have happened. The second source of um, fretfulness is the inaction of God. Now, you'd think god do something about this, wouldn't you? I mean, here are this, here's this evildoer, these wicked folks that are getting along fine in life. God does nothing about it. I mean, if God doesn't punish them, punish them for their evil, at least He'd prevent them from succeeding, but He doesn't. As H.G. Wells said, He just sits in heaven, does nothing. Now, what's, what's, what's the deal here? Looks like God would move in and make some straighten this thing out, and at least prevent these evildoers from succeeding. There is no greater illustration of it in the Bible than the book of Habakkuk. That minor prophet was just screaming out in his fretfulness of, of the apparent inaction of God. I mean, they were surrounded. Was Judah? by the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans were threatening their national security, and even God's people were wavering and becoming wicked, and Habakkuk says, why doesn't God move in and do something about this? Why does God just sit back and let it happen? I don't understand that. Do you? Every time I call God, He puts me on hold. as was some folks, how some folks feel. And if you read that first chapter of Habakkuk, in the fifth verse, God says, I am doing something, but this is what I'm doing. I'm using the Chaldeans to punish Judah and to, and to reveal my wrath upon Judah. So it leads us to the third point, when God acts. He acts in a way sometimes we don't understand. I mean, when God does something, we don't understand what He's doing. God moves in time and, and to accomplish His will, and we can't figure out what He's doing because we don't understand that. That leads us to the third point, that is our apparent ignorance of the way God acts, the way God does. Now there are two implications in that, of that. First is, that's true because God operates on a different timetable. Now we operate under these deadlines, you know. There's an Oriental fable that says that, ma- that the American citizen carries a God on his wrist. He's talking about a wristwatch. Most of us do worship this God. We operate on these timetables. We just know that God is supposed to act and operate on, on, uh, in, on, on the basis of my timetable, on the basis of my deadline. When it doesn't happen, we get all upset about that. Phillips Brooks, the great Boston preacher, said, the thing that bothers me is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. Have you ever noticed that? Of course you have. He never gets in a hurry, but he's never late. He operates on a different schedule. And he operates on a different value level from us. You see, what I mean by that is that oftentimes what we feel is the most important, God doesn't feel that's that important. You ever notice that? What we just know is important, God didn't think it's that important. For example, for the average Christian, the third heaven experience would have been the greatest thing in the world. You know what Paul, you know that third heaven experience that Paul had, he went to heaven. I mean, um, perhaps the only guy that was able, that's ever done that and come back tell about it. Well, it wasn't such a big deal for God. In fact, you probably never even know about it. I mean, if you hadn't read the book of uh, 2 Corinthians pretty carefully. For God said, hey, Paul, I'm gonna make that... Uh, that third heaven experience, what it really is, really insignificant. I want to teach you something far better than the third heaven experience. I'm going to send a thorn. You see, what for us is the most important thing is the removal of the thorn. For God, it's the additional grace. You see, what's important for us in life is convenience, what's important for Him is Christ's likeness. What's important for us is health. What's important for him is truth. Oftentimes, God operates on a different value level from us. And so what God is doing in our life that's beneficent and graceful and good and important, for us, it's the worst thing that could have happened to us. For the things that are important to us are not that important to God sometimes. But regardless of where the anxiety comes from, where the fretfulness uh, comes from, There are some solutions to it. As a matter of fact, he makes four suggestions in this text that will enable us, listen to this, I'm going to make you this promise, four suggestions this morning that will enable you to live a life free from fretfulness, from anxiety and from worry. Did you notice that this text began with fretfulness and ends in restfulness? and in between are the steps to get from one to the other. Now, now isn't that what everybody wants in life is a life that is free from anxiety, free from fretfulness? He's saying, I'm going to help you to get from fretfulness to restfulness, and he makes four suggestions, each one of them building on the other. By by that I mean that one one grows out of the other, And, and these are the four suggestions. Trust in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and rest in the Lord. Did you notice how preoccupied those four suggestions are with the Lord? It's not just trust or, or delight or commit or rest. If that were true, then it would be a matter of, you know, doing it ourselves. It's, Preoccupation with the Lord. It's trusting in the Lord delighting in the Lord, committing your way to the Lord, and being still and silent before the Lord, each one building upon the other. Now notice the second thing about these suggestions. They are a matter of choice. They are an act of the will. He does not say rest in the Lord if you feel like resting, trust in the Lord if you feel like trusting, commit your way to the Lord if you feel like committing. It's just doing it as a choice of the will, an act of the will. Now, let's look at them carefully. How to have inner peace. How to get from fretfulness to restfulness. First, trust in the Lord. Verse 4. This is the basic, this is the foundation. Out of this, the others come. As a matter of fact, you would not delight in the Lord if you didn't trust Him. And you wouldn't commit your way to the Lord if you didn't trust Him. And you wouldn't rest in the Lord if you didn't trust Him. So this is the foundation out of which all of us flow. This is the root out of which all of us grow. Trust in the Lord. Now the main idea of that word, now watch this, is just leave it in the Lord's hands. Now folks, there's some things that you have to leave in the Lord's hands. Like Dale Galloway, that, encou- that day he had that encounter with the Lord, he said, I just took my hands, I looked at the problem that was in my hands, and I held my hands out to the Lord, and I turned them palm down and said, Lord, this is out of my hands. I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to leave this with you. There are some things you just have to leave in the Lord's hands. Now did you notice what he said in verse 4? He said, trust in the Lord and do good. Now this is what he's saying. He's saying that there are some things that you have to leave in the Lord's hands, then you just have to go on with your life, obeying the Lord, doing what God has told you to do. You just have to leave some things with the Lord and get on with what God has for you to do. Have you ever noticed that God has never given us an assignment to worry? You ever notice that? I mean, when you read the Bible, you don't, you, or get up in the morning and have your prayer time, doesn't, God never says, this morning now I want you to worry. I mean, today is the day you worry. I want you to tear yourself to pieces with anxiety today. He never says that but there are some things that he does tell us to do. Now, the Psalmist is saying, you just find out your assignment, and you just get on doing that, and you let God do what he's supposed to do. You leave those things in his hands, and you do what you're supposed to do. You see, trusting in the Lord and doing good go together, for there is nothing that stifles doing good as much as anxiety or fretfulness. So you just leave it in the Lord's hands and you get on with what you're to do. You just tend to your own business, he'll tend to his. You get on the airplane tomorrow to head to New York City, that jet airliner, you don't go in the cockpit and say, let me take over this thing. Not in light of all that's happened, they would be hauling you out in a straitjacket, taking you straight to the uh, FBI uh, office. What you do is you go inside there, you take a look in the cockpit and the guy says, you go on back there and sit down and do what passengers do and we'll stay up here in the cockpit and we'll do what pilots do. Now that's what the psalmist was saying. There's some things you just have to let the Lord do while you go on doing what you're supposed to do. Trust in the Lord. Second, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, you say, well, what does this have to do with with anxiety, fretfulness? Well, now, I think I can answer that. You see, most, many of us get all fretful and anxious because we're afraid we're going to lose that which we most dearly prize, isn't that the truth? We're afraid we're going to lose that which we most dearly prize, which we most dearly possess, uh, we most, that is most precious to us. Those are the things that make us anxious. We're afraid we're going to lose that. Now watch this. In order for us to live a life that is absolutely free from fretfulness and anxiety, we're going to have to find our delight in that which cannot be lost or taken away. Now, I'm not saying that we're not to delight in, in possessions or money or or even family, children, etc. I'm not even I'm not saying that we're not to find pleasure in those things or those people. I am saying that if we do not delight in the Lord, we're delighting in that which can be lost. Now, what, is the word, what does that word delight mean? It comes from a Hebrew word that means to bend forward, to bend toward. Now, what he's saying is this. He's saying, what is your life, your desire, your pleasures, what, what are those bent toward? He said, if they're bent toward things that can be lost, you're going to be anxious all your life. What he's saying is, the word means delicacy. It's it's a sweet tooth, really. And he's saying, if you develop a sweet tooth, a bent toward God, so that what you really delight in in life is the Lord, and doing what the Lord wants you to do, you will have that which can never be lost. You won't have to worry about it. Isn't that great? Now, watch this. If I delight in possessions, I may never see the fulfillment of that desire. If I delight, if the delight of my life is the most important thing in my life, is my health, then I I may never realize the fulfillment of that, or my family, that may be lost. But if the delight of my life, the most important thing in my life, my bent toward is the Lord, then I I have that. He gives me the desires of my heart. So you know what that means? It, means that, it, it may mean that fretfulness is the best thing that ever happened to you because fretfulness reveals that your delight is not in the Lord. All right, third, he said, commit your way to the Lord. Now the word commit means to roll over. I mean, roll it over. To roll this thing over on to someone else. It means to dislodge yourself from this burden and roll it over to someone else. And, and then in, in the immediate breath, in the same breath, he said, trust in the Lord and he will act. And, and the implication is, until I am willing to roll this burden, whatever it is, over to the Lord, roll it over to him and make that kind of initial act of submission of my will to him, then he cannot act in my life, you see so that I roll this over to him and he will act. Now notice what he said. He said, commit your way. He didn't say, commit your burden. He didn't say, commit your circumstances that cause you worry. He said, commit your way. Watch this. The word means trodden path. It means an established way of life. One commentator calls it reputation and another calls it career. So what he's saying is commit your reputation, commit your trodden path, commit your career to him, roll that over to him. For isn't it true that we're anxious and fretful because we're afraid that this circumstance or this thing in our life is going to dislodge us from our trodden path or is going to interrupt our way of life, our security. And isn't it true that we're so worried and anxious that if something happens, this happens, what are folks gonna think about me? What are they gonna say about me? What about my career? Is it secure? He said, commit your trodden path to him. And all that anxiety, fretfulness, that's attendant to that will go away. Somebody told a, a pastor friend, she said, my, 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 my pastor said to me one day, my, my child, one of my children became very rebellious and ran away from home. And she said, my pastor told me, she said, uh, he, he said, if you were living right with God and were right, the right kind of parents and had the right kind of home life, your son would have never done that. Well, that's a lot of encouragement. That'd be about as welcome as a wet dog at a picnic, somebody come and tell me that. If you just live right, well, you know, you wouldn't have any problems. And he said about six months later, that pastor's son became rebellious and ran away from home. And, and he said the preacher was so humiliated and embarrassed about it, he quit the ministry. And she said, I think my pastor was more concerned about what people would say or think than he was about that boy of his. That's true. We just guard our reputation and we just protect our career, our trodden way of life, our established way of life, and we're so uptight about what's going to threaten that. When I first started out in the pastorate, I if somebody went and, you know, maybe left our church and moved their membership, man, that just put me in a tailspin. I just, I wasn't, I, I wasn't concerned about what caused that person to move their membership. What I was concerned about, how it's going to make me look, you know. Well, folks, think about me. If folks leave my church, go to another church, is that guy better preacher than I am? Just worry me. Just kept me in a dither all the time. got a ulcer over it. Now, I want you to notice what he said. He said, you commit your way to the Lord and He will do this. Watch. He said, He'll make your righteousness dawn like the, rise like the dawn. He'll make your righteousness dawn on people. And the New International Version says, He'll make the justice of your cause shine like the noonday. You know what He's talking about? He's saying He's going to vindicate you. You commit your career to God, your reputation to God, your lifestyle to God, your trodden path of life, your established way of, lead of living. You just commit that to God. You just live like God wants you to and he'll vindicate you for it. And the word is that you entitled to that vindication, you can count on it when he draws the bottom line, the right way will be vindicated. You don't have to worry about your reputation and your career and your trodden lifestyle and your established way of living if you just commit that to God. He's going to vindicate that. Before everybody's going to vindicate it. You know what I thought about? I thought about Jesus. Listen to this. For you have been called, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being revived, he did not revile in return. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Listen, underline it, but kept trusting himself to him who judges righteously. He knew that God was going to vindicate him in the end. It's true. One last thought. You trust in the Lord. You delight yourself in the Lord. You commit your way to the Lord. Verse seven, rest in the Lord. Now the word means perfect submission. Perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my side. Perfect submission. It's a word that means to be silent. A quiet mind. It's a word that suggests resignation. The renouncing of self-help. No complaining. No mumbling. Just to be still before the Lord. Now the next breath he says. And wait patiently for him. Now waiting is not something that I put on my top list. You know the ten most... Like things in my life, waiting. If I catch a train down here on East Main, this drives me crazy. So I'm gonna buzz out, and I'm gonna scratch gravel, and I'm gonna head down this this street. And I'm gonna go down to the overpass, the viaduct. By the time I get to the viaduct, look back and everybody's just going through there, just blinkity split. I don't, I don't really, you know, uh, cotton to waiting. The word patient in the Hebrew get, get this means stirring agony now that seems like a paradox doesn't it he says be silent before the Lord and wait in stirring agony but that's the truth what is the most agonizing thing you and I have to do It's so wait on the Lord What gives us, what is more agonizing than just to wait on the Lord? Get get quiet. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. You'll never know that he is God and he'll never be exalted among the heathen until you get still. Get quiet. Be silent. Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. Stop trying to change things yourself. I was reading Arnold Prater's book this week. Listen, this I'm through. Take heart. You're waiting in stirring agony. I know. It's about to be over. Arnold Prater told about growing up in. The Ozark Hills and he said we, we worked horses, worked teams, and he said we had an old mule. You know, everybody all, you know, I guess everybody worked mules, he said some of them have what they call latherers. An old latherer. An a latherer is a is a mule that just gets itself all worked up. But he doesn't do any work, he just works himself up, and gets in a lather, you know. He said they had a no mule called old Billy, He's it's, it's a big lather. He said he just prancing around and get just twisting and squirming in the in the in the harness and said everybody knew he wasn't doing any work. The, the the horse that was in to him, you know, hitched up to him in the in the in the trace was doing all the work. But old Billy just working himself up every day, and getting in the lather and said at the end of the day, old Billy would just be exhausted because Arnold Prater said There's nothing any more exhausting than trying to be somebody you're not. He said, rest from that effort to try to win those points from God. Rest from that effort to try to be somebody you're not. Rest from that human effort that tries to make tries to ward off death. Wait on the Lord. And I I think Bev Shea sings it like this. Acres of diamonds, mountains of gold, rivers of silver, jewels untold. All these together couldn't buy you and me peace while we're sleeping a conscience that's free, a heart that's contented, a satisfied mind. These are the treasures money can't buy. But if you have Jesus, there's more wealth in your soul than acres of diamonds and mountains of gold. Trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest before the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this word of encouragement and help. And now, Lord, for this time of decision and response may this moment be the moment you desired for it to be when you brought us to this day. And when you planned an eternity past for our life, I pray that this moment shall be as you desired. And that every response and every decision will be pleasing to you. I pray in Jesus name for his sake we have three invitations the first invitation is for folks who have never trusted Christ the first time experience of salvation for you to come repenting of your sin that is turning away around from the old life and turning by faith to Jesus Christ trusting Jesus At Jesus alone for your salvation transferring your trust from where it is to him the second invitation is for you to join the church feeling led of God to put your life here you come just to say I want to I want to join your church tell me how the third invitation is for those of us who need to publicly commit or recommit or rededicate or Publicly declare that we're coming back to a new commitment of our life to Jesus Christ. These are the invitations. I trust you'll respond as God leads you to do it while we stand to seeing you come.